Hi guys, welcome back to Reading During Recess. My name is Terry LaRue and I'm a first grade teacher. And I'm Sarah Hansen and I'm a writer. And a high school teacher and, now. Yeah, and now a teacher, yeah. <laughs> this is huge. <laughs> Neither of us are going to make any money. <laughs> and this is our second episode that we have recorded in the same room. Yeah. Very exciting. This one is at Sarah's house as opposed to our last one, which was in a, a really charming little setup put together by some friends where they hung quilts on the walls. Very yeah, cute. it was neither of our houses. It wasn't their house either. We did get kicked out. Yeah, it was. <laughs> <laughs> Damn, I wish I was funny. <laughs> well, today we are doing our 21st episode where we're going to be discussing books 12 and 13 of the series of unfortunate events. Book 12, The Penultimate Peril and book 13, titled The End. And also the only book in the series that is not alliterative. Isn't that sweet? Yeah. Sweet. I don't know why I chose the word sweet. I wouldn't say it's cute. I would say it is certainly a fact. Yeah. You know what? I think interesting would be a stretch. Yeah. Um, (laughs) But of all the things that happen, this is one of them. (laughs) And that's important to remember. The Series of Unfortunate Events is a children's book series by Lemony Snicket, which is the pen name for the author Daniel Handler. So, The Penultimate Peril was published in October 2005, and The End was published in October 2006 by HarperCollins on Friday the 13th. And The End actually had sales of over 2 million copies in the U.S. and was the best-selling children's book of 2006, according to Publishers Weekly. Yeah. 2006, what a year. Steve Irwin got gored. (laughs) Sorry, <laughs> I got distracted. That sounds definitely like around the right time for him to get gored. Bummer. There's also the Dems won a lot of seats in the midterms. And uh, on a more he... unfortunate note, I was in middle school, which yeah. is probably the worst thing that happened. That was that also year. when Hannah Montana premiered, I'm pretty sure. Really? 2006? I thought it was earlier than that. I think it's 2006, but you can fact check me. Uh, I'm not going to fact check Sarah. Sarah was a. A genuine Hannah Montana fan. Yeah. I was not, on account of not knowing who she was, because (laughs) I only listened to folk music that was written in the 12th century at that time. Mm. You had just gotten out of your Gregorian chant space, if I remember correctly. Mm. (laughs) Anyway, we're going to jump in. We've got uh, two of the longest books in the series to talk about. So what say you? We dive straight into the plot summary. Let's do it. Excellent. First, we'll be talking about book 12, The Penultimate Peril, which is such a great title. I know. Penultimate, of course, meaning second to last. And the book begins right where the Grim Grotto, book uh, 11, left off with the Baudelaire's riding from Briny Beach to the Hotel Denouement. Denouement? Denouement? Yeah, I'm not French, but in the... TV show, they say Hotel Denouement. Denouement. Okay. With Kit Snicket in her taxi. And they're going to Hotel D, which is what we are going to call it henceforth, (laughs) uh, because it's the last safe place for VFD volunteers to gather. Yes. And so Kit tells the Baudelaire's that they will be disguised as concierges at the hotel. As we know in this universe, if someone puts on an outfit that they don't normally wear they are immediately unrecognizable to everyone who's ever known them before so this should work and for sure also if that outfit involves sunglasses or a hat oh hats hats are really big for um completely masking one's identity 
I know. And the Baudelaire's p- pictures have been all over the Daily Punctilio for weeks. I know. And still not a single person recognizes well, them. They weren't dressed as concierge and they weren't wearing sunglasses. It's true. And you don't think about these things. <laughs> and that's why I'm the brains of this operation. <laughs> so, anyway, Kit tells the Baudelaire's that they will be disguised as concierges at the hotel. And that they will need to be flaneurs and spy on the hotel guests to try to discern who is wicked and who is noble. Specifically, they're trying to figure out who J.S. is. J.S. is the one who um, has summoned a lot of people to this gathering for BFD. I found the use of the word flaneur really odd and mm-hmm. <laughs> funny. Because really what they're being asked to do is spy. But she kind of frames it in this different way that's like more chill. Well, to give a little back story on the word, it's a French noun that refers to a person, and so it literally means, like, stroller, like, the person who strolls, not, like, what you push a baby in. Mm. Lounger, like, someone who lounges, not something you lounge in. Mm -hmm. And a saunterer. Not to be confused with a sauna, a very hot room full of steam. Mm. Or a loafer. Not Not to be confused with bread. And I was really confused. Yeah. Man. So again, (laughs) that took a long time. Let me say that again. (laughs) A flaneur is a French noun referring to a person, literally meaning stroller, lounger, saunterer, or loafer, but with some nuanced additional meanings. Again, I don't speak French, so uh, (laughs) flanerie is the act of strolling, but with all of its accompanying associations. Traditionally depicted as male, a flaneur is an ambivalent figure of urban affluence and modernity, representing the ability to wander detached from society with no other purpose than to be an acute observer of industrialized contemporary life. And this was a literary type in the 19th century France. Um, a flaneur would, like, wander around Paris and write down things and make observations and didn't really have a job. I feel like that's what an English degree, like, primes you to do. Yeah. Because it really can't set you up for much else in this yeah. society. But I would be an excellent flaneur. I would, too. And Kit tells them, she's like, children make excellent flaneurs because people rarely pay attention to them. But that's not what they're doing. Like, they're fully employed as concierges, like, yeah. working round the Exactly. Clock. Like, they're the exact opposite. <laughs> like, they have so much stuff to do. There's no strolling. There's no lounging. Like, a so much... I mean, the word spy is just, like, right there. You yeah, know? <laughs> yeah. But, you know, Lemony, he loves to teach us new words. He sure does. Even if... I'd say I learned the most from you in this particular scenario. Yeah, I would say the use of flanor there is misleading. Mm. But whatever. Anyway. <laughs> all of this is told by Kit to the kids over this, like, incredible breakfast spread. My favorite things about the Lemony Snicket universe, and honestly, like, most books are just depictions of food. Yeah. I love reading about food. Uh, but... Much more important, Kit tells the Baudelaire's that the hotel managers are two identical brothers whose names are Frank and Ernest, which I love. Uh, Frank and Ernest Denumont. Frank is a volunteer, so is, like, presumably noble, but Ernest is an enemy. And Kit is, like, extremely unhelpful, uh, giving any tips that might help the Baudelaire's tell them apart. She's like, yeah, you'll be able to tell. They can't tell. None of us can tell. Honestly, it's infuriating. I know. They're, like, honestly telling me that there's not a single difference between them. Exactly. Like, they don't do their hair slightly differently. One of them doesn't have a freckle that the other one yep. doesn't. Like, like, come on. You know everything else. Yeah. And she's just like, you for sure you guys got this one. You know, one of these people is literally a toddler. <laughs> and she's like, you guys, you've got this. Don't even sweat it. If I were the Baudelaire's, I would be, like, rabid with fury all the time. Even like, like, even the smart, even nice the adults smart, they meet nice are so 
fucking annoying. I know. They're so... They just give them tons of information in a really short amount of time, and then they're like, you got it. Oh, my God. Do you think it's like a... Like an analogy for school? <laughs> yeah, maybe. The American public school system? <laughs> yeah. You guys are going to need to remember all of this. You got it. Life is terrible. Good luck. So during their first day as flanors that are not really flanors, the Baudelaire's split up to assist the hotel guest. Violet assists Esme Squalor and Carmelita Spatz by bringing them a harpoon gun. And it's weird because she's like, I don't know if that was the right thing to do. And I'm like, probably not. Right? Like, there are some things in this that you're like, hmm, could be. Yeah. But like, that one is so low on the list. Like, yeah, you don't give a deadly weapon to people who are known to be evil. Right? And I I wonder, like, at this point, we know who Esme Squalor is. Yeah. You know, we know that she's killed before. Yeah. (laughs) We know who Carmelita Spatz is. And yet, oh, Violet. The things that they try to set up as being, like, morally gray in this book are sometimes absolutely exhausting. Yeah. Yeah, but she's like, well, it's my job. And I don't know. I was told to do it. It's like, okay. Meanwhile, Klaus assists Charles and Sir, who are the owners of the Lucky Smells Lumber Mill, and, like, probably romantic partners. We can get more into it later. By escorting them to the sauna, and is also charged with hanging flypaper outside a window. Um, One of the managers, and we don't know if it's Frank or Ernest, asks him to do that. This one, I think, is, like, a little bit more fair to be like, is this the right thing to do? Yeah. And honestly, if I were Klaus and I ran into Violet, like, having this moral dilemma and she told me hers, I'd be like, bitch. (laughs) (laughs) And meanwhile, Sunny assists Hal, who uh, was the um, employee at Heimlich Hospital who was in charge of the Library of Records, as well as Vice Principal Nero, Miss Bass, and Mr. Amora, the teachers from Proofrock Prep while locking a VFD device onto a door of the laundry room, converting it into a vernacular, vernacularly fastened door. And meanwhile, all the guests are discussing the mysterious J.S., and it's unclear to the Baudelaire's whether J.S. might be um, friend or foe. Yeah. And so when they're reunited, the siblings discuss what they did that day, who asked for what, and um, they're confused because they all perform tasks for separate managers, presumably. Frank or Ernest asked them to do all of those tasks, but they were also all doing them around the same time. But there's only two brothers, but there's yep. three Baudelaire's. So, so make that make sense. And they're just not sure which of the things they were tasked with doing were villainous or otherwise. Right. But Klaus has a theory. So Klaus thinks that Carmelita probably requested the harpoon gun so that she could shoot down the sugar bowl, which is likely being delivered to the hotel via crow. You'll remember the crows from book seven, VFD, Village mm-hmm. of Foul Devotees. The flypaper was probably to catch the crow as it fell, and the sugar bowl would probably fall into the laundry room via the laundry chute, which has been locked with the VFD lock that Sunny put on. So the Baudelaire's are having this conversation in the middle of the night in the lobby of the hotel, and then a man comes out down from the ceiling. Oh, yeah. And climbs down via a rope <laughs> and introduces himself as Dewey Denumal, who is the second surprise triplet of the book series. There's something in the water yeah. in this city. Or these are all, like, IVF babies. And Dewey is the third brother to Frank and Ernest, and he is a volunteer. And he tells them that the pool reflection of the hotel is the actual safe place, uh, as the hotel's words and structure were designed backwards to reflect the actual words onto the pool. And beneath the pool is an underwater catalog containing crucial information concerning VFD. 
The hotel design is extremely strange. I, he says that it's that way so that even if the hotel burns down, the underwater catalog is safe because you can't burn down a pool. Uh, so then Jerome Squaller and Justice Strauss, JS and JS, mm-hmm. they both arrive at the hotel and reveal that they have been receiving messages addressed to JS and both assumed that the messages were for them. Jerome, Justice Strauss, and Charles from the lumber mill have all been searching for the Baudelaire's and hoping to help them as they are racked with regret over how their incompetence <laughs> harmed these poor children. As they should. Yeah. So Justice Strauss and Jerome Squaller inform the Baudelaire's that on Thursday there's, uh, there'll be a trial at the hotel in front of the high court on which Justice Strauss serves and has served for much of her life. Uh, in which the volunteers will present their research and prosecute Count Olaf and his associates for their crimes. This should, you know, and everyone keeps telling the Baudelaire's, they're like, don't worry, everything's going to be fine. You know, like, it's all going to happen, you know, on Thursday, which is honestly so infuriating. Like, take five minutes and stop and just tell me some shit. Yeah. You know, even Dewey, who is, like, probably the most competent adult we've seen like, in this entire book up till this point is still just, like, it'll all become clear. And it's, like, honestly, it could be clear right now Yeah. if you could just just stop walking for five seconds. Yeah. So Count Olaf arrives and threatens to shoot Dewey with a harpoon gun uh, if he doesn't tell Olaf the code to unlock the VFD lock on the laundry room door. And the children um, try to prevent the killing, and Mr. Poe um, suddenly enters causing Olaf to shove the weapon into the Baudelaire's hands, and they are surprised and drop the gun, which causes it to discharge and kill Dewey. Yeah, that's a huge bummer. That's so disappointing. Something that which obviously the Baudelaire's will, like, blame themselves for and, like, carry with them, despite the fact it's, like, so very much not their fault, but they will, like, add to their list of deeds that they believe make them comparable to Olaf. Mm-hmm. Complete buffoonery. As the Baudelaire's are trying to figure out whether or not they should flee the murder scene, (laughs) they have what is likely their only interaction with Lemony Snicket, the character, in the whole series, a cab driver who is likely Snicket. I think it's, like, kind of implied in the book that he is. And then in the TV series, the Netflix series, he's definitely Lemony Snicket. Um, And he asks them if they need a ride anywhere. And they decline because they don't feel that it's right to flee the scene of a crime, and I think they're still hopeful that Justice Strauss and the legal system can protect them. Idiots. (laughs) So then Justice Strauss pushes the trial forward a day, because she said, well, you know, anyone noble who was coming here for the trial would have gotten here early anyway. (laughs) Which is like, what? It is such a great take. (laughs) And so this trial now is like a, a bundled trial. It combines the crimes of Olaf with the accused crimes in the Baudelaire, specifically their killing of Dewey. Um, So in other words, both the Baudelaire's and Olaf are on trial. But Justice Strauss tells the Baudelaire's not to worry, that she's confident that the other two judges that she works with on the high court will be reasonable and that the Baudelaire's have nothing to fear. In typical Lemony Snicket universe fashion, there's this insane caveat to the trial uh, where they follow the expression justice is blind and everyone at the trial, except for the justices, must be blindfolded. And everyone is just like, okay. Yeah. They all, they're all pretty good sports about it. <laughs> except for Sonny, who's like, huh? One of the managers gives the Baudelaire's their blindfolds. 
And he says, everyone wears blindfolds at a high court trial, the manager replied, except the judges, of course. Haven't you heard the expression, justice is blind? Yes, Klaus said, but I always thought it meant the justice should be fair and unprejudiced. The verdict of the high court was to take the expression literally, said the manager. So everyone except the judges must cover their eyes before the trial can begin. Scalia, Sonny said. <laughs> she meant something like, it doesn't seem like the little literal interpretation makes any sense. <laughs> But her siblings did not think it was wise to translate. One of my favorite sunny utterances of the whole series, probably. Um, yeah, and so at the trial, Olaf pleads innocent, and I really appreciate the way that he describes his innocence. So he says, I am so incredibly innocent that the word innocent ought to be written on my face in capital letters. <laughs> The letter I would stand for, I'm innocent. The letter N would stand for, nothing wrong, which is what I've done. The letter A would stand for, that's not how you spell innocent, Justice Strauss interrupted. I don't think spelling counts, Count Olaf grumbled. Spelling counts, the judge said sternly. <laughs> well, innocent should be spelled O-L-A-F, Count Olaf said, and that's the end of my speech. The bench crackled as Olaf sat down. That's all you have to say, Justice Strauss asked in surprise. Yep. And Olaf said. So the Baudelaire's have a bit of a moral quagmire on their hands, but they plead comparatively innocent because they feel like they have done some things wrong, but they've always tried to do what they thought was the right thing. And they finally get the chance to tell the complete story of their misfortune to an audience who will listen, which is something that they have been waiting the entire series to do. And it's pretty satisfying when it finally happens and you're hopeful for a moment that maybe it will make a difference. Unfortunately, one of the reasons why <laughs> Olaf was so not pressed about this whole trial and why he didn't really bother to defend himself is because the trial is rigged and the other two justices who are on the high court are then later revealed to be the man with a beard but no hair and the woman with hair but no beard, who you will remember are his kind of evil mentors. And so it was never going to be a fair trial to begin with. And I think it's important to note that these people have been on the high court, like, this whole time. Like, it's yeah. not like they infiltrated it. Like, you know, it's not like they replaced the two people who are actually supposed to be there. You know, they've always been in the court, which is such a good analogy for, you know, life and yeah. the entire American legal system, that they were never going to win. The Baudelaire's didn't have a chance. It was already rotten inside. So while everyone is blindfolded, Olaf uh, is in the midst of kidnapping Justice Strauss to pursue the Sugar Bowl and is dragging her away. So the Baudelaire's um, <laughs> unblindfold themselves. No one else does, though. Yeah. Everyone else just keeps it going. I know. You know. So they pursue Olaf into the elevator and travel down to the laundry room. Yeah. So Klaus realizes that the sugar bowl is not in the laundry room, and so he helps Olaf crack the VFD lock code on the laundry room door. And then when Olaf realizes that the sugar bowl isn't there, he gets really angry, and then he declares that he's going to the roof to get the specimen of the medusoid mycelium that he got from the last book, The Grim Grotto, and he's going to spread the fungus throughout the hotel and kill everyone. Just, I guess, because just for, just to be evil. Yeah, he's just, like, in such a bad mood now, I guess. Yeah. Like, even though that would also presumably put him at great risk. You would assume. Also, he's got to, like, I mean, he's still after someone's fortune, you know? Yeah. Like, what are we just gonna... Including, you know, all of his people inside. Mm -hmm. uh, but his plan is to escape the situation in a boat, which he will 
jump in off of the roof. So Violet, realizing that his plan is foolish, agrees to help, and Klaus is surprised that she'd do this, but Violet knows that they need a way out as well, and going with Olaf is probably going to be the only way. And then Sunny abruptly suggests that they burn down the hotel, and Olaf agrees. Olaf is delighted, her siblings are horrified, um, but later realize that the burning hotel is a message to VFD to let them know that the gathering on Thursday is canceled and that the last safe place is no longer safe. At the beginning of the book, Kit said something about, you know, if if the gathering needs to be canceled, send us a signal in the sky. Mm-hmm. I feel like there's probably a less dangerous way to send a signal. Well, you know, if Kit were that insistent, you know, yeah. possibly she could have made some suggestions. Yeah. Instead of having this, like, entire brunch with them yeah. and giving them no information. So the Baudelaire's, along with Justice Strauss, attempt to alert everyone about the fire. They run through the hotel and say everyone should leave, but everyone's blindfolded and, like, bumping into each other. And... It's such a chaotic scene. Yeah. Well, it's... it's <laughs> so they get in... They're on the laundry room floor, which is, like, in the basement, uh, and they're trying to get to the roof. So obviously the Baudelaire's are like, all right, let's go. So they get in the elevator with Olaf and then just immediately press every single button. Yeah. <laughs> which is just such a fun image. Yeah. It's just like... <laughs> their little hands (laughs) and this obviously has two purposes number one to slow down olaf um and number because the well i mean it's still and the fire has already started you know they they already started the fire in the laundry room so this is so they can stop at each floor and shout out directions they can tell people that the hotel is on fire but as sarah said everybody's still blindfolded they don't like know whether or not to believe who's telling them things they are completely unwilling to take off their blindfolds the whole thing is such a great metaphor um but i think the most important takeaway is that sir and charles the partners from the lucky smuggles lumber mill are holding hands mm-hmm. yes confirming our previous theory that they are lovers you know you could be like well maybe it's because they're blindfolded but it's not. Yeah. It's because they're lovers. Yeah. And a lot of people are, like, too scared to admit it. But here's the thing. We're not. <laughs> <laughs> so then the authorities arrive. And this is why the Baudelaire's knew they had to flee, because they were already accused of murder and arson. And now they're being accused of murder again and arson again. And so they're like, we got to get out of here. Justice Strauss really wants... She's refusing to go. She wants to stay. She wants to try and, like, rehold a trial to bring Olaf to justice. And she wants them to go to the authorities. But the Baudelaire's are like, there's probably... They're, like, very outright. They're just like, there's probably evil people in the police force, though, is essentially what they say. They're like, we don't know how many people in that group are our enemies, you know? Forget about even just, like, the idiots who, you know, believe the Daily Punctilio. So yeah, so the Baudelaire's and Olaf sail away from the hotel and out to sea. So these books are quite long and there's a bazillion illusions in them. We won't explain all of them, but I'd like to hit a few of, of the fun ones. Frank Ernest and Dewey's surname, Denouement, is a reference to the literary term Denouement, which refers to the action that takes place between the following action and the resolution of a plot which makes sense given this book in the context of the series. It is kind of the the last book before the plot is resolved, or in the case of this series, not really that resolved, but at least... Not remotely resolved. At least it's ended. <laughs> yeah, at least we can read different books for the podcast. Yeah. 
And Dewey's name is probably a reference to the Dewey Decimal System, which is how the entire hotel is organized. On that note, the Hotel Denouement is modeled after the Library Hotel in New York City. What? There's a library hotel in New York City? Yeah, isn't this That is so cute. Fun. This is from their website. The Library Hotel's collection of over 6,000 books is organized by the Dewey Decimal Classification System, and each of the 10 guest floors honors one of the 10 categories of the Dewey Decimal Classification, and our 60 rooms are uniquely adorned with about 50 to 150 books and artwork exploring a distinctive topic within the category it belongs to. I don't know what the categories of the Dewey Decimal System are because I'm not that much of a nerd, but there might be like a floor dedicated to languages and then like a room on like the French language and a room on the Arabic language. And that is so cute. Isn't that fun? And oh, I really want to go. I love that. We should go. We should go. <gasps> we should go. Why aren't we there right now? Sarah and I are going to start a GoFundMe. <laughs> um, all of you need to fly us to New York. <laughs> we don't want to drive. We want to contribute to CO2. <laughs> Uh, it's mentioned in the book that author Richard Wright asked the question, who knows when some slight shock disturbing the delicate balance between social order and thirsty aspiration shall send the skyscrapers in our cities toppling. This refers to the novel Native Son by the aforementioned author. There are also some other literary references. There are several quotes from the Italian opera uh, La Forza del Destino. And it's mentioned that the Baudelaire parents attended the show and that the pivotal scene that happens at this opera where Olaf is made an orphan is shown in the Netflix version. Oh, it is. They episode. actually show it. Yeah. Mm. I can talk about that in a few minutes. The Netflix series plugs in a lot of the plot holes or not even plot holes, but like things that just the book questions. just doesn't explain. Um, and because the Netflix series is made with... Daniel Handler. I, th I think we can call it canon. Works for me. Yeah. Okay, so do the Baudelaire's parents make Olaf an orphan? Because oh. that doesn't make any sense unless he was, like, he, an adult. He was, an, he, was... he was an adult orphan. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. You know, the world is full of adult orphans. We <laughs> yeah. don't have to make a big deal out of it. Both of my parents are adult orphans, and they don't talk about it. <laughs> Another literary illusion, Kit Snaggett tells the children that tea should be bitter as wormwood, and sharp as a two-edged sword, which is a reference to the biblical verse from Proverbs, and it is chapter 5, verse 4. And then one that is obvious, I mean, I think, you know, to anyone who's not a child, um, Sonny says Scalia to me, and the literal interpretation makes no sense, which is, of course, a reference to U.S. Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. Rot in peace. <laughs> All right, so I kind of think of these books as both being the end of the series mm -hmm. because the penultimate peril, you kind of get that satisfying thing that you hope to get with the end of a TV series where a lot of the old characters come back and you get to see them again. Yep. It's a very kind of like chaotic, overwhelming, action-packed, character-packed story. And then with the end, we get a much more solemn alone story <laughs> uh, where the Baudelaire's are literally crashed on a desert island. There are other people there, but we don't know most of them and they're not that fun. So the end begins uh, with the Baudelaire's out at sea on the Carmelita, the boat that Olaf and the children escaped on. Um, and they briefly consider shoving Olaf overboard, but don't do it because it would be wrong or whatever. 
Um, the Baudelaire's honestly, you know what? They are to blame. It's just not for the reasons that they think it is. They yeah. think it's because all this shit that they've done by accident. It's not. It's all the times they could have done something on purpose and didn't. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm, I'm sick. I'm absolutely sick. <laughs> they could have disposed of Olaf so many times in this series, but they have all these stupid moral quandaries, which are so boring. And frankly, I know. Especially because pushing Olaf overboard would be like the most valid, honestly, borderline nonviolent way to dispose of him. Yeah. It would be so easy. There wouldn't be any blood. There wouldn't be any gore. And, you know, it would it would be more or less a guarantee that he would perish. Yeah. Um, what does happen, though, is that they uh, encounter a terrible storm and end up shipwrecked on an island, specifically on a huge coastal shelf that is so expansive that they can't actually see the island mm-hmm. up ahead. And a young girl named Friday welcomes the Baudelaire's, but does not welcome Olaf to the island due to his cruel demeanor and tells him that <laughs> you have to be nice. Right. This to marks be on the island. This marks the f- first and only, and I guess last time that we see people just like seeing through Olaf. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, it's pretty satisfying. She's just like, no, you, like you seem like you suck, and like you, you know, you just seem highly suspicious and unpleasant. Mm-hmm. Olaf has this notion that the people who live on the island are quote primitive, See? and that they'll revere him as a king. And Friday's like, no, I'm yeah, not. And then he threatens to shoot her with a harpoon gun, and she's like, no. Olaf's response to realizing he shipwrecked on an island is really funny. So he says, I've discovered an island, Count Olaf cackled. I'm going to name it Olaf Land. You didn't discover the island, Violet pointed out. It appears that people already live on it. And I am their king, Count Olaf (laughs) proclaimed. Hurry up, orphans. My royal subjects are going to cook me a big breakfast. And if I'm in a good mood, I might let you lick the plates. (laughs) And then when Olaf sees Friday... He says, I am your king, Olaf announced in a grand voice. Bow down before me, Friday. And she says, no, thank you. (laughs) Our colony is not a monarchy. And then he refers to it as Olaf land. I discovered the island, so I get to name it. Friday peered at Olaf curiously from behind her sunglasses. You must be confused, sir, after your journey through the storm, she said. People have lived on the island for many, many years. Primitive people, (laughs) sneered the villain. I don't even see any houses on the island. We live in tents, Friday said. Uh, Unfortunately, that's not the last we see of him, but it is satisfying to watch. Finally, someone trust the Baudelaire's. I know. And I love that it's a six-year-old girl. Yeah. So the island seems safe and relatively pleasant to the Baudelaire's, but it's also definitely very strange. The island has a facilitator named Ishmael who introduces the Baudelaire's to the islanders and their customs. And Ishmael, who says that he prefers Ish, tells the islanders consistently, quote, I won't force you, but it becomes pretty apparent that his decisions go largely unquestioned and his suggestions are obeyed like orders. And what Ishmael says happens. Yeah, so he is not able to get up from his chair that he sits in because he says his feet are injured and they're always covered in healing clay. He refers to the bottle... Ishmael would have been a essential oils girly. You're so right. <laughs> I won't force you, but this is a great opportunity for you to be a business owner. <laughs> hey, girly, I won't force you, but do you want to be a girl boss? Slay queen? You get to make your own schedule. <laughs> 
read you are unemployed <laughs> anyway yeah so ishmael um kind of gets everyone to do everything for him because he can't get out of his chair and at one point he refers to the Baudelaire's as orphans despite the fact that they never mentioned to him that they are orphans which the Baudelaire's find suspicious and it suggests that he knows more about them than he is letting on I will say they're right about this he is suspicious and does know more than he's letting on but it's also possible that it was just an inference that he made based on the fact that three small children washed ashore with no parents and no mention of parents. <laughs> like, it seems like a fair guess. You know, read between the lines. So, the island is... I don't know. It's it seems pretty dull right off the bat. For one thing, there isn't any fresh water apparently, so the islanders all drink fermented coconut milk, which they refer to as coconut cordial. And the Baudelaire's after trying it reject the cordial and say that they dislike the taste. As a kid, I did not realize that it was just like straight alcohol. Yeah, me neither. I was I was I was like, yeah, I mean, I get that coconut juice honestly doesn't sound super appealing, but I now realize that it is an alcoholic beverage. And there are also no books for Klaus or mechanical devices. There's probably a few things to bite. But Ishmael seems to think that almost everything that washes ashore is either dangerous or could invoke strife between the islanders. For instance, the islanders at various points bring up different items that have washed ashore for Ishmael to look at, and it's decided whether those items will become part of the island or will be moved to the... Arboretum? Arboretum, that sounds right. So, like, one of the things that someone brings up is, like, a big propeller, you know, and Violet suggests that maybe it could be used to make a fan for the hot days, and then Ishmael's like, ah, I won't force you, but it sounds like there would be some disagreement over who got to use the fan, you know, who gets to stand in front of it on the hot days, and so pretty much everything that's brought to him, even though he maintains that he won't force them, anything that suggests a change to the way the island currently lives is immediately moved away. So later, the pregnant Kit Snicket, who first appeared in The Penultimate Peril, and a friendly snake known as the Incredibly Deadly Viper, who first appeared in The Reptile Room, are shipwrecked together on the island. So I love the sheer number of things and people and animals that just appear on this island. Yeah, I know. They say there's like a saying where they're like everything washes up on these shores eventually. And it seems to be true. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I miss the the IDV, the incredibly oh. deadly viper. Yeah, I was like is that a birth control method? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just thought we could talk about it now. Yeah, the IDV makes one last iconic appearance on the island. So Count Olaf disguises himself as Kit. I think he puts seaweed on his head to make it look like he has long hair. He Um, puts something under his, and we find out what the something is, but he puts something under his dress to look pregnant. Right. And for the first time in the series, Olaf's disguise refreshingly fools nobody. (sighs) Thank God. And they place him inside of a large birdcage, and then Ishmael shuns the Baudelaire's for possessing forbidden items, which include, I believe, a hair ribbon, a whisk, and is it a notebook? I think it's, I think it's his commonplace notebook. Yeah, so they're... Pos- I think they're things that they all already own, except for the whisk. Yeah, the whisk was gifted by Friday to Sunny because she knew she was interested in cooking. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite part in the entire book is, I'm pretty sure... Violet, like, doesn't recognize it. 
they're talking about different things that they're going to keep and Violet's like I'm not giving I think it's her hair ribbon up and Klaus is like well I'm not getting rid of this and Sunny's like I'm keeping this and Violet's like huh what is that I know, imagine being 15 and not knowing what a whisk is. Jesus Christ. <laughs> but the Baudelaire's were the 1% before <laughs> their fall from grace, so they probably never whisked their own eggs. Fair point. <laughs> They've never whisked a day in their lives. I yes. guess they're just not very big whisk takers. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, so the Baudelaire's have been shunned from the island community. And they have been left out on the coastal shelf, which is just like this huge stretch of damp sand that floods every once a year, right? Yeah. So they've been left out there. And that night, two of the islanders sneak out to feed the children and ask them to join in a mutiny to overthrow Ishmael. Um, And we realize that the contented life on the island is not all that it has seemed. Um, The Baudelaire's agree. They have some sort of mixed feelings about it. They always have these dumb little moral quandaries. (laughs) Obviously, Ishmael sucks. You know, like, there's... I'm I'm so tired of them, honestly. But yeah, they talk about it for ages. Mm -hmm. Is it nice to overthrow a corrupt... (laughs) Is it kind? Are we equally wicked if we stand up for ourselves? No, you're not. So they go to the Arboretum to collect weapons. Remember, the Arboretum is where everything is dumped that um, Ishmael will not allow on the island. I think it's very important to note that the things that are not wanted are carried there by a flock of sheep. That's correct. And another thing in the Arboretum, besides (laughs) the sheep who drag the sled that carries the items, is a large apple tree. But all of the apples are, according to Ishmael, bitter and are no good for eating. The Baudelaire's... When they go to the Arboretum, discover a hidden room, and the room contains a book that chronicles the history of the island. Um, And this book is partially written in their parents' handwriting, which is, ooh, Ooh. very exciting for them. Ishmael arrives and explains to the children that their parents were once the island's leaders and were responsible for many improvements in island life, but were eventually overthrown by Ishmael, who brought the island back to a simple and austere way of life. And he gets to keep all of the comforts of the island for himself. The Arboretum is full of mechanical devices and food and all of... has got a working refrigerator. Yes. All of the things that Ishmael thinks are too dangerous for the islanders to have, he gets to keep for himself in this Arboretum that no one ever goes to because they believe it's full of dangerous items. So yeah, Ishmael sucks. So the Baudelaire's, and, but he is a girl boss, and I just want everyone to to be mindful of that. It's like, we might not agree with all his actions, but I would say that Ishmael is demonstrating girl power. Yeah, and I by think... Hoarding, by hoarding wealth. And I think that the icon, Queen Elizabeth II's death, <laughs> is really echoed in the story of Ishmael, because <laughs> as far as hoarding wealth goes... And oppressing island nations goes. She's the original queen. Yeah. So the Baudelaire's and Ishmael go back to the other side of the island where the mutiny is already underway. And pretty much the whole island is sort of divided as to what their plans are. Half the island wants to force 
I don't, they, they don't plan to kill Ishmael, but they plan to force him onto the outrigger that they've been building and send him off at sea once the flooding starts. And they are also talking about forcing on the rest of his supporters. And the island, I would say, is divided in about half and half. And in the midst of all this, Count Olaf returns. I guess he got out of his birdcage. And he's um, feeling just fine. <laughs> And he's still going with the disguise. He's still very, he looks insane. (laughs) Still very insistent that he is Kit Snicket. And after a brief exchange, Ishmael harpoons Olaf in the stomach. Unfortunately, this harpoon shatters the part of Olaf's disguise that represents his pregnancy, which happens to be the medusoid mycelium, and immediately infecting the island's entire population at once. Remember that the medusoid mycelium is the spore that that almost murked Sonny in the 11th book. Yes. <laughs> Yikes. The Baudelaire's rush back to the Arboretum, hoping that they can find some horseradish there to cure the islanders, and they do not. But from the book that their parents wrote, they learn that their parents had hybridized an apple tree with horseradish so that the fruit could cure the effects of the medusoid mycelium. And they learn this while they are really on the brink of death you know they can like barely move at this point it's pretty horrific yeah but in the last second the incredibly deadly viper offers them an apple and after sharing it they are restored to health the butlers gather more apples for the island's inhabitants but when they return they find that the islanders are already boarding the outrigger canoe uh, with ishmael and they're planning to sail to <laughs> to a horse horseradish factory on land which obviously is an insane idea they have about an hour and ishmael refuses the apples even though he himself they realize has already eaten one yeah it's really dark and you also realize i don't think that we've talked about this a lot but one of the things that the baudelaire's realize about the coconut cordial is that it's alcoholic and it basically just makes everybody who drinks it, which is the entire population of islanders, just, you know, a little bit sleepy and a little bit compliant, yeah. I suppose, would be the best word. And then Ishmael leads them, presumably, to their death. It's very sad. Yeah, and so the main reason why the Baudelaire's, or one of the main reasons why the Baudelaire's aren't as pliable is because they refuse the coconut cordial. So they must be very dehydrated at this point, but their their wits are still sharp <laughs> yes it's just so sad you know friday's on that boat although it is hinted that the incredibly deadly viper might have snuck one apple on board mm-hmm. uh that could potentially save the islanders but like many other things in this book we just simply don't know the fate of the rest of those people so the baudelaire's return to the island and the only people left besides themselves are kit and olaf So they go back to Kit, who is very much not well, and she tells the Baudelaire's that the Quagmires, Hector, who was the handyman from the village of foul devotees, Captain Wittershins, Fernald, who is the hook-handed man, and Fiona have probably met mysterious and unfortunate ends. And Kit begins to go into labor, and again, is also near death, but refuses to eat an apple because she says it will harm the baby. I don't think that's the case. (laughs) Yeah, also I'm like, maybe it's a risk worth taking. I don't know. Yeah, right? Like, what, are you just going to die and leave these three kids on their own with, like, presumably a fourth kid? Like, help (laughs) us out, lady. (laughs) 
Yeah, or like hurry up and give birth to the kid and then eat the apple, you know? Like, yeah, like just, come on now, you're being stupid. Just pop it out and get munching. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> so she is still on top of the large raft of books, Kit is, and the Baudelaire's aren't strong enough to get her down. So then the critically injured and fungus-choked Olaf hears that Ket is still alive, and so he takes a bite of an apple, regains a little bit of strength, and manages to get her safely down onto the beach. And he, in a surprising twist, gives her a single soft kiss as he lays her on the sand and collapses. He's still conscious, but he is not well. And then Kit starts doing what people in this book series are prone to do, which is reciting an old poem. <laughs> so she recites the poem, The Night Has a Thousand Eyes by Francis William Bordillon, and is answered by Olaf, reciting the final stanza of Philip Larkin's This Be the Verse. Which is interesting, because we haven't had a whole lot of evidence that Olaf can read. Right. Or <laughs> that he cares at all about anything related to literature or the arts that don't include the plays he writes himself. And then after Count Olaf finishes reciting the poem, he takes his last breaths and dies. Woohoo! So the Baudelaire's help Kit deliver her baby girl, and Kit requests that this child be named after the Baudelaire's mother, which is traditional within their community, and Kit then dies. Yes. And then the book ends with a short epilogue. It's the only book in the series to have a 14th chapter. And it begins one year after the birth of Kit's daughter. Kit's baby and the Baudelaire's decide that they want to leave the island, even though they have built a pretty nice life for themselves there with all the luxuries of the Arboretum, because they want to rejoin the world once more. As they board the ship, Kit's baby says the boat's actual name. So this boat, the Carmelita from book 12, but the, it has been renamed to its new name, which is also the name of Kit's baby, which is bum ba da bum Beatrice. Ah! So that's a big reveal because it means that Beatrice, who all of the books are dedicated to by Lemony Snicket, was the Baudelaire's mother. And was presumably the love of Snicket's life. Yes. Rip. Rip indeed. Snicket suggests that he is unsure whether the children survive the journey. And there's more to talk about with that in terms of like some of the other series of unfortunate events materials that have been published. And then the TV show, which has a kind of different and more optimistic ending. So we'll talk about that because there's different theories as to what happens to the Baudelaire's after. A lot of people on the internet have a lot of thoughts about... Um, what happens at the end of this book. Some people were disappointed by the ending's ambiguity, which I think is fair, you know, if you spend this much time with these characters, you would like to know whether they live or die. Yeah, please. Especially um, when the characters are four young children. Right. The Snicket fandom wiki says that the book 13 contains a notable continuity error, as Snicket states that he was unable to find any trace of the Baudelaire's and therefore knows nothing about their fates. However, other earlier books by Lemony Snicket indicated that the Baudelaire's did, in fact, reach the mainland, that Snicket is writing about them from some future date, and that all three orphans survived and are now adults. The Beatrice letters, 
which is a book that I read and it's kind of doesn't really provide much information. <laughs> it's like very cryptic and like a lot of like torn pieces of paper and stuff. Um, Sounds exhausting, if I'm honest. Yeah. It makes references to Sunny when she's older. And then the reptile room book two speaks of Klaus many years later, wishing he had pushed Count Olaf back into his taxi. And the bad beginning rare edition mentions that Violet will return to Briny Beach a third time. And at least one mention is made of adult Violet being haunted by nightmares of the child she endured as a child. So that seems to suggest that they are alive as adults. So what's the truth, Lemony? It's, I mean, come on, you know, you got to give us something. These yeah. poor fucking kids. Yeah. I, I just don't think I could bear to have read this entire series and then just imagine them all drowning at sea. <laughs> I know. Well, listen, it might have happened. No. The younger Beatrice in the Beatrice letters, so this is Kit Snicket's daughter, the point of the Beatrice letters is that she's exchanging correspondence with Lemony Snicket, um, searching for Violet, Klaus, and Sonny. So it can be presumed that she's separated from the Baudelaire's, who at the same time go missing, or at some point possibly die. And in the Beatrice letters, there's this punch-out anagram in the book, which spells Beatrice sank, possibly referring to the boat in which the children sail off at the end of chapter 14. And a poster from the Beatrice letters shows the remains of the ships, showing Klaus's glasses, Violet's ribbon, and Sonny's whisk. Which is very sad, but doesn't mean they died, because these kids are pretty resilient. Yeah. You know? I maintain that you can survive losing your glasses. <laughs> Maybe even a whisk. Yeah, but not a ribbon if you're that girl whose head is held on by a ribbon. Remember that story? Exactly. If you're the girl with the green ribbon around your neck, there's one thing you simply mustn't lose. I was obsessed with that story. I know, me too. Okay, well, I personally believe that the Baudelaire's did survive, uh, are deeply traumatized, but also homies still with Beatrice, and everything is hunky-dory, because I actually need to have a happy ending if I am to continue living. Well, then you would very much enjoy the TV show, the Netflix series ending. Okay. Hit it. The TV series is Lemony Snicket's A Series of Unfortunate Events on Netflix. The final season came out in 2019, and there are two penultimate parallel episodes, as is normal to have two episodes per book, and then one, the end episode. I recommend watching these episodes if you like the books, the final episode, or the end, provides more details and closure than the book does. So it's heavily implied that all four Baudelaire's survive the boat ride from the island. I say four because they refer to Beatrice as Beatrice Baudelaire. Like, she takes on the Baudelaire's last name. Kind of weird, but It whatever. is kind of weird, but whatever. Um, <laughs> we find out what's in the sugar bowl, which is never explained we in do? the book series. Yeah. Oh my god! I know. Okay. This was a topic of much debate in the uh, series of unfortunate events community for a long time trying to figure out what could have been in the sugar bowl and it is sugar derived from a botanical hybrid that immune immunizes people against the effects of the medusoid mycelium hooray kind of seems like the apples already do that but you know whatever it's kind of i guess well, it's like in theory the this is like the be all end all right yeah yeah, no, you're right. You're right. It safe. immunizes you. Yeah, you're yes. right. So it is different than the apples. The apples are like an EpiPen, but the sugar is like a vaccine. Everybody eat your sugar. <laughs> That's the takeaway here. 
We also find out in the series, and this doesn't really make sense with the timeline that is set up in the book, but does make sense in the context of the TV series. We find out that Ishmael was the founder of VFD, and he recruited the Baudelaire parents and the Quagmire parents and the Snickets and Olaf when they were school children at Prufock Prep. Ishmael explains all of this to the kids when they find his book, or the book that their parents wrote in his Arboretum. And so when the schism happened, VFD fell apart and Ishmael defected to the island where he could be safe. This doesn't really make sense in the context of the books because VFD is indicated to be a much older organization. Yeah. And also, I think in the Lemony Snicket unauthorized biography, Snicket talks about being... (laughs) There's like this song about how Lemony Snicket got brought into VFD and he was brought into it as a small child and was basically kidnapped from his family and put into VFD. Yeah, isn't that really dark? So weird. It is weird. So he didn't join it voluntarily while at Proof Rock Prep. Anyway, so it's it's different, but I think the TV series it makes it kind of makes more sense in a lot of ways because Yeah. more things. Well, it answers all the unanswered questions that this book series is lousy with. Exactly. Olaf becomes a more sympathetic character because we learn that he feels like he was manipulated by Ishmael and VFD to believe that people are good and that learning how to read will make you a better person (laughs) and all that stuff. And then he still feels like his life didn't turn out very good. And so he blames Ishmael. And then most importantly, at the end of the end episode. Beatrice is older, She's, but she's still a child. She's probably like 10. And she reunites with Lemony, who is her uncle. And basically what happens is that in the TV series, Lemony is looking for the Baudelaire's. He cannot find them. And then he receives a note from Beatrice Baudelaire, the second, which kind of happens also in the Beatrice letters. So the Beatrice letters seems like it was kind of the inspiration for this plot point. They're communicating to try to, because she wants to explain to Lemony where her older siblings slash parents um, ended up. So it is different than the Beatrice letters. Is in the Beatrice letters, she's like, do you know where they are? And Lemony's like, no, do you know where they are? And they're like, oh, shit. But (laughs) But in the TV series, she does know where they are. And so he meets her for a root beer float. And she picks up where his research left off and tells him about an encounter that the Baudelaire's had with female Finnish pirates while aboard the Beatrice. And it is heavily implied that they all survive the boat ride. Oh, yeah. And also um, in the books, we never know who Beatrice II's father is. But in the TV show, it makes it clear that it is Dewey Denouement. Which seems heavily suggested in the books as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And in the TV show, we also see Quigley Quagmire reunited with his brother and sister on their balloon-powered home. And we also see Fiona and Fernald receive a distress call from their stepfather, Captain Wittershins, whom they had been searching for. So... Hooray! Yeah, happier endings all around. (laughs) So critics had some kind of mixed feelings about these happier endings. Hannah Shaw Williams in 2019 wrote an article for Screen Rant, and she liked the ending, and she said that um, the final chapter of a series of unfortunate events is finally able to have a happy ending, which is crucial to the themes of all three seasons because the series isn't really about the unfortunate events that happen, but about the Baudelaire's willingness to persevere. And so, like the viewer, the Baudelaire's decide to keep going in the face of this constant discouragement. 
in the end, once their perseverance has been rewarded with a safe haven and answers to their questions about their parents, they wonder if they should stay on the island, but Violet says they can't shelter baby Beatrice forever. So like their parents once did, they set out on a new voyage, which will likely throw them into more unfortunate events. But the final scene between Beatrice II and Lemony Snicket represents this shift in perspective. Whereas Lemony was once fixated on the loss of Beatrice, he now sees the potential that the future holds in Beatrice II. And instead of telling a sad story, he opens himself up to hearing a happier one. Mm. Which is nice. Kind of contrasting that, Marion Eloise wrote for The Digital Spy in 2019 that the ending betrays the best thing about the books. Even though it provides a lot of answers to questions, she says that it in some ways deviated from the tone of the books by making things easy. The books following the lives of the three orphans that an adult man wants to murder are already pretty dark. They are also obtuse, which is frustrating for fans, but rewarding when they get to feel like they've solved a mystery themselves. One such mystery is that of the sugar bowl. And she says, um, there have been a lot of theories over the years about what is in the sugar bowl. And there are entire forums dedicated to the contents of the sugar bowl. Daniel Handler has previously refused to reveal the contents. Yeah, there have been suggestions that it contains evidence to exonerate Lemony Snicket, that it's just a MacGuffin. And the most popular one is the one that's the most similar to the reveal in the TV series, that it contains seeds infused with horseradish as an antidote to the medusoid mycelium. She mentions that some fans were uh, disappointed by the book, The End, because they really thought that it would answer a lot of these questions. And instead of a neat ending, got a depressing island visit that sees the Baudelaire's become parents. <laughs> Yuck. But uh, then she says the wrapping up of the Sugar Bowl mystery in the TV show um, signals not only the end of many sleepless nights for fans, but the end of an era, the end of an all-consuming mystery that put a series of unfortunate events a, a step above other children's writers who feel the need to go back and solve every mystery of their series. Cough, J.K. Rowling, cough. <laughs> Daniel Handler, via Lemony Snicket, taught children to be curious, to discover, to dig, to look further into mysteries, to read more, to learn better words, to invent their own worlds and families when the ones they had wouldn't. Uh, the Netflix show, in wrapping up the Sugar Bowl mystery, puts readers' minds to rest, but it also betrays the best thing about the books, which taught us about the hopelessness of life, that nothing would ever be perfect or neat or easy to understand. Okay, well, as a self-described stupid person, I like happy endings. I will always choose a happy ending. Yeah. So while I understand where she's coming from, as a moron, I have my personal preferences. I hear ya. All right, we're going to move on to, and now a word from us kids, where we give reviews written by kids for kids. And we are going to be doing both the ones for book 12, The Penultimate Peril, and book 13, The End, now. So we're going to start with this one from Hedgeguin 2, which I guess is like a half hedgehog, half penguin, which I think is just very cute. <laughs> and they write, the penultimate peril is such a chilling but thrilling story. It rhymes. The Baudelaire's go to the last safe place of VFD, Hotel Denouement, to find all the former people they met along their journey. The Baudelaire's are disguised as concierges to not be noticed in the hotel. Through a tragic stay at the hotel, the Baudelaire's are discovered, but they aren't letting Count Olaf and his minions get them. But is that the only choice they have? Five stars. Okay, Hedgequin. I think that was a great review. Yes. Golfing Girl 123 says about book 13, This book was awesome and very interesting, by the way. Whoever sees this should take my advice and read the book. Dot, dot, dot. 
I'm just saying, kids and adults, dot, 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 bruh, dot, 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 <laughs> five stars. It's giving boomer. <laughs> All the ellipses? As, exactly. Yeah. As a child of an adult who speaks entirely of el- like through ellipses, I am sickened. Also, I adore my coworkers, but this is how they type, and I always think they're mad at me. I'm like, you have got to stop. That is the most ominous thing ever, putting ellipses in your texts. I know. Okay, dot, dot, dot. What's the matter with you? Yeah, goals says, I'm a huge fan of A Series of Unfortunate Events, but for some reason this book just wasn't as good as the rest. I feel like Lemony Snicket did not quite know how he wanted the series to end, and that it just kind of ended in an unsatisfying and uncreative way. Overall, it is my least favorite book of the series, but it is still good. Just wish it would have ended more interestingly or that we had more answers to the mysteries. I'm going to be honest. I think that's really valid Yeah. goals. I would not call this my least favorite book in the series because that honor uh, has already been bestowed on book 11. Right. Which is definitively the worst book in the series. Yes. <laughs> it's so annoying. Uh, it's God, I just, oh, I got mad because I thought about it again. <laughs> oh, I got so annoyed. <laughs> Hang on, I have to breathe. <laughs> but I, I understand. And like, and, and I remember when I read it, you know, I was like, come on. <laughs> For sure. I was pretty bummed. I think it's totally valid to say that it's unsatisfying. I think it is. And I think in a weird way that was like Lemony Snicket kind of wanted that. Like that's kind of his MO, but. Oh, I'll I think s- definitely. Yeah. But I also agree that I don't think that he ever. Yeah. I don't think he had a lot of a plan going into it, you know? I think it's kind of an easy fallback for him. And a valid one, honestly, Mm -hmm. but also a convenient one to be like, it's mysterious. The whole series is mysterious. I'm like, (laughs) okay. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And even as a kid, I thought that. I was like, okay, so you just don't know, do you? Exactly. It's a very different reading experience than, like, Harry Potter, where you do feel like it has been plotted with incredible precision sometimes almost to an annoying degree but the journey feels satisfying and legitimate Mm -hmm. when it's all over right but cute says all the books are good you have to read 13 books i feel so sad to the baudelaire kids count ulf was such a bad man all he wanted was the money why would he want why would he want to be rich you are lucky that you even have a house Poor people do not have a home. They would love to be in your place. You should be happy in what you have. <laughs> I think this review starts so strong with the phrase, you have to read 13 books. <laughs> like, I don't know if they meant you have to read, like, all 13, but it just sounds so... It sounds tired, honestly. That's great. I love this take. Good job, cute. Cat's Love said, I decided to read this book because I am almost done with the series of unfortunate events. I hope Count Olaf dies in this book. <laughs> and Cat's Love, i got some good news for you, girl. I love this review. This review is great. Simple to the point. Also, I love any sentence that just includes the phrase, I hope blank dies. <laughs> yeah. Grace says, hi, and spoiler alert. Multiple exclamation points. I'm serious. Multiple exclamation points. Okay, quick summary. This book is about the Baudelaire... The bon- <laughs> this book is about the Baudelaire children get shipwrecked on an island. <laughs> I love the idea of Baudelaire as in rhyming with gondolier. 
<laughs> I think we've had so many misspellings of these kids' last names. I know. I, this one is so far up there on my favorites. I know. This book is about the Bondelire children get shipwrecked on an island and get saved by the islanders Count Olaf is with them and he dies. The children find out about the truth and all the islanders die. <laughs> The children take care of Kit's baby when she dies, and Sunny talks for the first time. The children become mother and father. I love the sentence structure implying that as soon as the children find out the truth, all the the islanders die. Like they just explode into dust. You're right. The children find out about the truth, and all the islanders die. Also, something about the sentence, the children become mother (laughs) and father is so gross. Oh, it is disgusting. It's very bad. And like, I mean, I get it, Grace. That is suggested to be how they view themselves Mm -hmm. to this child. But you simply cannot say that. (laughs) Yeah, our last review comes from Jiyun2446. He says, even if Olaf was a bad person, I'm going to stop you right there. I don't think we're I don't think it's an if like I think we know pretty definitively this person absolutely tweeted they're like really guys like we need some respect right now regardless of how you feel about Count Olaf the child murderer he was somebody's brother and sister no he wasn't in disguise he was he was somebody's optometrist he was somebody's optometrist he was somebody's reptile assistant he He was was somebody's gym teacher (laughs) he was somebody's boat captain he was somebody's murderer (laughs) please guys show some respect now is just not the time (laughs) Oh my god. Okay, so we're already working with the thought, even if Olaf was a bad person. He says, um, I didn't like it when he died. Poor Olaf, he died with peace. (laughs) Exclamation point. Thanks to the Baudelaire's, Kit Snicket's baby is alive. Oh, and I was impressed when Sunny started to talk. (laughs) Poor Olaf, he died with peace. (laughs) Yeah, piece of this, pow, pow, pow. (laughs) Fuck that bitch. We are not child murderer apologists in this house. Also, I was, to be honest, like, pretty shook up when Sunny started to talk. I don't think we mentioned yeah. at the end of the book, Sunny is talking like an adult human. Like, mm-hmm. she's using pronouns and conjunctions. She's there. She's doing it. Yeah. Uh, and honestly, it super duper threw me off. And it's valid. I'm not saying that Sunny's growth needs to be permanently stunted by my nostalgia, but... I got got. Yeah, it's funny because she, like, adopts the same tone as her siblings. You know, they all speak in that kind of, like, very polite, almost somewhat formal yes. way, you know? It's true. <laughs> she sounds like them. Little sweeties. <laughs> Man, I hope she still gets some good political digs in there every now and then. <laughs> Me too. Bushini. <laughs> Bushini. Maybe speaking of um, references... We want to mention some of the allusions in book 13. This book is lousy with allusions. So let's start with the most obvious one, the name Ishmael, which is, of course, a reference to Herman Melville's Moby Dick and uh, his insistence on the phrase, call me Ish, is a play on the famous first line of Moby Dick, which is, of course, call me Ishmael. My favorite part of the book is that absolutely no one calls him Ish. 
Yeah. And isn't it, doesn't he write it in the, in the book? Yeah, he, like, writes it in the book. He's, like, day one or, like, day 37, you know, like, got electricity set up. (laughs) Thought, why won't anyone call me ish? (laughs) Very sad. As someone who tried to get the nickname Bubbles kickstarted in middle school. What? I told you this. I knew about JoJo. I did not I know I don't want to talk about that one. That one's even more embarrassing I don't know somehow. that it is. They're both pretty rough. Yeah, they're pretty equal. Yeah. As someone who has tried to kickstart multiple <laughs> nicknames in my youth, uh, I understand the pain. And his is more legitimate than either of the ones that I tried to get off the ground. So... Well, I think it's really proof of the age old. You can't pick your own nickname. You, it's true. You can't. For instance, I would love it if people stopped calling me Toilet Paper Terry the Tennessee Trash Baby. <laughs> but it just seems like no one's willing to get behind that. I guess you also can't pick when your nickname stops. <laughs> but <laughs> here we are. Oh, my God. Oh, man. All right. Well, speaking of names, all of the islanders in the colony take their names from famous castaways from literature or the real world. So Robinson and Friday originate from Daniel Defoe's Robinson Crusoe. And there's also names from Shakespeare's The Tempest, including Mrs. Miranda Caliban, Alonzo, Ferdinand, and Ariel. Calypso was an island goddess nymph from Homer's The Odyssey. And Rabbi Bly is named after William Bly, who was involved in the famous mutiny on the bounty. These are some good ones. Uh Uh-huh. So the castaways uh, who dress in white. Oh, that's another thing we didn't mention, that all of them wear matching white robes. Yeah, it's giving cult. Yeah. (laughs) The Baudelaire's clothing is immediately, like, taken away from them, Mm -hmm. and they're given, like, the white robes. And their consumption of the coconut cordial, which keeps them docile, are an allusion to the lotus eaters. Uh, which are encountered in Homer's The Odyssey, where Odysseus and his men land on an island inhabited by the lotus eaters, a gentle people who only consume the fruit of the lotus plant, and those who eat the lotus fruit forget about returning home and prefer instead to hang out on the lotus island and eat lotus fruit, and Odysseus eventually has to drag his sailors uh, weeping back to the ship and ties them to their oars to escape the lotus eaters' island. All this to say... It's a tale as old as time. Yeah, charismatic cult leaders drinking special drinks. Yeah. (laughs) I also thought of the cordial as being very, um, it was giving Jonestown to Yeah, yeah, that's what I said. Like, I always read the Islanders as a reference to Jonestown, not the Lotus Eaters. Um, Same. Although the Lotus Eaters... I mean, I didn't really know who the Lotus Eaters... I don't know, I read the Odyssey. I do not honestly remember the Lotus Eaters at all. But I remember Jonestown. Yeah, I was like there or anything, um, <laughs> but no, that's how I always interpreted it. Yeah, especially the leading them to their deaths at the end. Yeah, and having them drink. Yeah, stuff. you know the notion of him dragging them away gives very much um, mass suicide vibes. Yeah, Ishmael definitely seems like the kind of person who would have been posting on Facebook telling you to like inject horse tranquilizers if you had <laughs> <Yeah>. COVID. <laughs> Yeah, this book actually predicted uh, yeah. <laughs> predicted the stupidity of the anti-vax movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's another reference to the Odyssey, or an illusion. It seems likely that the sheep, the ones who drag Ishmael around on his little sleigh, and who drag 
items to the Arboretum could be a reference to Odysseus's escape from the Cyclops cave where he and his men hid under the sheep that were strapped together as they were exiting the cave. The sheep as used as a mode of transportation is also possibly a reference to El Dorado, which is described in Candide by Voltaire. Or in the New Testament, Jesus often uses sheep as symbols to represent his followers. And the sheep in the end do Ishmael's bidding and sleep in his tent, presumably indicating Ishmael's status as a false messiah to the castaways of the island. The coconut cordial is also described as the, quote, uh, opiate of the people, which is a reference to that passage written by Karl Marx, which reads, Religious suffering is, at one and the same time, the expression of real suffering and a protest against real suffering. Religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world, and the soul of soulless conditions. It is the opium of the people. I always thought it was the opiate of the masses. Well, there's probably different translations, right? Yeah. Yeah, so Snicket also references the Sumerians, who were people who inhabited what are now Ukraine and Russia. They were a nomadic Indo-European people who appeared around 1000 BC. And Snicket says that they... Um, traveled constantly and often at night because they traveled in shadows so people few people ever got a good look at them and they were considered sneaky and mysterious and to this day things done in the dark tend to have a somewhat sinister reputation and he blames that on the Sumerians which feels a little unfair but yeah I don't know about all that (laughs) yeah he says thanks to the Sumerians the darkness makes even the most innocent of activities seem suspicious but also possibly this could be a reference to In Greek mythology, the Sumerians are a member of a mythical people who live in perpetual mist and darkness near the land of the dead. But that doesn't seem like who he's referring to because, again, he says they're nomadic. Hmm. But it is also an adjective that means very dark or gloomy. Anyway, so that's another. That's a more historical allusion. At the beginning of chapter 13, there's a mention of, quote, the heroine of a book much more suitable to read than this one, who spends the entire afternoon eating the first bite of a bushel of apples. And this is one of those references that I got immediately and was so excited to get. This is a reference to the character Ramona Quimby from the book Beezus and Ramona by Beverly Cleary. And in the scene in question, Ramona, who is four years old, takes one bite out of each apple in a bunch before just, like, tossing it aside because, to her, the first bite tastes best, which is, I mean, completely valid and legitimate, but um, all four-year-olds are the devil, so <laughs> those are just facts. Um, he, he picks such a wide range of literary references. I know, and that one was good mm-hmm. for my little... Uh, another reference is that the tree that the islanders are forbidden to eat from is likely a reference to the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the bible so the incredibly deadly viper offers the bottlers an apple from the island's forbidden tree which is a reference to how Eve was tempted by a serpent into eating a fruit from the tree but instead of ruining everything this fruit saves their lives it's beautiful this is another good sunny one when sunny asks why are you telling us about this ring the word she uses is neoclot which is <laughs> Tolkien spelled backwards, which is obviously a reference to J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. Another Sunnyism <laughs> includes Sunny referring to the coconut cordial as Leith, which is a reference to the Leith River, whose waters caused forgetfulness in Greek mythology. Yeah, lots of Greek stuff going on here. No, man. Uh, yeah, Sunny's just nonstop in this book. In chapter six, she tries to say the phrase, what exactly are you accusing us of? And instead uses the word Dreyfus, 
This is a reference to French Jewish army officer Alfred Dreyfus, who was wrongly accused of treason in the late 19th century, and who was also held on an island. And Dreyfus's case caused a major schism in French society, which is, of course, similar to that of VFD and the island's colonists. In chapter 7, Sonny uses the word Yom HaShoah to say never again, which is a reference to the Jewish holiday Yom HaShoah, which is the day set aside for remembering the Jews who died in the Holocaust. The Baudelaire's are absolutely canonically Jewish. Yeah. These are facts. When Sunny agrees that eating the apples will dilute the poison, she uses the word Gen Tree 5, referring to Genesis 3, 5 in the Bible, which says, For God knows that when you eat of the fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. All right, we are about to finish up, but we are uh, going to talk a little bit about the reception of Snicket's last novel from the series. Henry Alford wrote a review of the end in the New York Times. This was from October 2006. He said, Yuck. What? That was the start of middle school. Oh, God, you're right. He said, Where in the end, and in the end, does the Unfortunate Events series leave us? It leaves us reminded of what an interesting and offbeat educator Handler is. In between all of the exotic ethnic food references and the gallows humor and the teaching of words like denouement and vaporetto, the books seem at times like a covert mission to turn their readers into a slightly dark hued into slightly dark hued sophisticates. To be sure, there'll be a payoff for those gothically inclined young readers who, as adults, see the sick joke at the heart of the characters named Klaus and Sonny. Or consider the series early lessons in postmodernism. The author loves to tell us to put the book we're reading down. And in the carnivorous carnival, he repeatedly gives us the definition of deja vu. In Penultimate Peril, he tells us we don't need to read the next three chapters in any particular order. The reader who receives such training is amply prepared for the rocky narrative landscape of Borges and Echo. And on a moral plane, Handler refuses to turn a blind eye to his protagonist's ethical lapses. Just before the Baudelaire's burned down a hotel to prevent the spread of a deadly fungus, he writes, It is very difficult to make one's way in this world without being wicked at one point or another, when the world's way is so wicked to begin with. And finally, the books, which have been cited as helping kids cope with fears after 9-11, offer a fairly rousing rationale for why in life we must all face the music and dance. Hmm. Honestly, I think that that is a great way to just sum up this series as a whole mm-hmm. and, our, and our coverage of it. I think it is an incredible series. Yeah. And I, and I love it dearly. Well, you guys know how Sarah and I feel about the series as a whole, but we are, as always, going to wrap up by rating uh, these last two books. We will start out by rating book 12 on a scale of uh, 1 to 10 harpoon guns. I am going to give the penultimate peril... I'm going to give it 9 out of 10 harpoon guns. It's not my favorite book in the series, but I love the recurring cast of characters. And I think it is the only book where the Baudelaire's actually do something that they could consider having moral quandaries about, which is to say burning down the hotel. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the only thing they do where I'm like, okay, that's it's valid to rethink mm-hmm. <laughs> this decision. Yeah, I agree. I love book 12. I just, I love the darkness of them realizing that the entire high court is a sham. Yes. Yeah, I think that one does probably the best job of, I mean, just being an incredible, like, real-world allegory, mm-hmm. you know, for for how deep and rotten 
this system is mm-hmm. and how how truly unprotected the Baudelaire's and anyone else are. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I would echo your rating. Um, it's not my f- absolute favorite in the series, but I think it's a really, really good penultimate piece. And so I would say it's nine out of ten harpoon guns. To wrap up, we will be rating book 13 out of Adopted Babies. And I am, I think once again, going to give this book nine out of ten Adopted Babies because there are just other books in this series where a 10 has just been so definitively my answer. Mm -hmm. And while I love this book, and I think it's a terrific end for the series, it just, you know, (laughs) I mean, no book holds a candle in the fifth one, and that's just facts. Yeah. So I will be giving the end 9 out of 10 adopted babies. Yeah, I think I would give the end 8 out of 10 adopted babies. I do like it a lot. I don't like it as much as The Penultimate Peril, and I did find it as a kid a bit frustrating the unanswered questions although I do think it is a very good and fitting end to the series I think with the modifications that the tv show makes for the ending I would put it more at a nine or maybe even a 10 out of 10 but for the book itself I would say which I guess kind of contradicts the title of one of our other segments which is the book was better but yeah it can't always be the case yeah I mean, come on, we know the Tuck Everlasting movie was a, just a classic. <laughs> I'm, of course, being facetious. <laughs> so if you'd like to find more of our stuff, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get podcasts. Please rate and review. We always love to read new reviews. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can contact us at reading underscore recess on twitter or instagram please feel free to give us a follow and um you can also email us at reading during recess pod at gmail.com thank you sarah and to all you orphan members of the one percent reptile enthusiasts hurricane survivors lumberyard employees students pinstripe wearers child laborers craniectomy patients carnival freaks mountaineers deep sea divers concierges and ostracized castaways out there stay reading (laughs) 